Microphone check. One, two, three. City, city, sibilance, sibilance. Levels check. Good. Sounds good. One, two, three. Rolling and. Documentaries are a labor of love. You don't look at it for fame. You don't look at it because you're trying to get into Hollywood. You do it because you're trying to send a message and you're trying to make a difference. During the process, it's agony and it's pain. So you have to ask yourself, is this what I want to do? Is this the story that I want to tell? Is this the movie I want to make? Because if you don't want to do it, then it's going to show because you have to be completely determined and passionate and in love with the story that you want to tell. Otherwise, you're unfair to the audience and you're really unfair to yourself. Hello and welcome to season two of The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. This is episode 101, and it is brought to you by the DocLifer Elite Mastermind, an exclusive weekly mastermind where filmmakers come together for support, guidance, and empowerment to make their best doc films and lead their best doc lives. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. It's 7 p.m. and I'm in the Phnom Penh airport in Cambodia. My flight doesn't even board for another four and a half hours. But it was Friday night. My great friend Kaisika, who I've known since I first began filming in this country 16 years ago, he just returned from a few days out in the provinces on an archaeological dig. He'd already had to fight the horrendous traffic of the city just to pick me up and take me to the airport. I certainly wasn't going to ask him to keep me company while I waited for my check-in counter to open up. Besides, he had a family to get back to. Which reminded me that I needed to message Steph before boarding tonight's plane. I'd be rejoining her and the kids after not seeing them for over three months. Anyhow, so I had some time to kill, but then quickly realized I didn't really have much of a place in which to kill it. You see, I couldn't exactly maneuver around the airport that easily. Not with three giant bags of gear. My camera bag and a smaller backpack, both of those I would bring on the plane with me. I had the bags and camera stacked on a cart while I wore the smaller but quite heavy carry-on backpack. That backpack was worth more to me than all of the bags of gear and my C300 Mark II camera and lenses combined. The gear I had some pretty reliable equipment insurance for, but if I misplaced my little but quite heavy backpack, well, I can't really say what I would have done. It basically had my life and well-being in it. It had my passport, and it had what I'd been working on for the past seven weeks, and what Steph and I had been working on since 2014, our documentary film, Elvis of Cambodia. So yeah, I, I didn't much feel like cruising around the airport just to burn some time. So I found a corner of the airport and I plopped myself down, making a mental note to maybe in the future find a lighter, more essential way to shoot films overseas. This was just too much. In fact, one of the first things that I can recommend to anyone looking to shoot a film in a place like Cambodia, it's this. Pack lightly.
only bring your absolutely most essential film gear and bring a quality pair of footwear. Just about everything else you can get in Cambodia. And probably for cheaper. Even your immunizations if you should be pressed for time and not make it to your local travel clinic before getting on the plane. Which I've done before by the way, and it was like half the price. I sat there bemoaning the fact that I was already going to have to pay an exorbitant fee for the extra bag, and I was just hoping against hope that none of these bags was going to be over the weight limit. For over two months, I'd been lugging these very heavy bags of film gear around the country, from one town to the next, one guest house to the next, one taxi or bus ride to the next. And each and every time, I'd say to my travel and filmmaking companion, Patrick, I have to figure out a better way, man. This is just too much shit. Because here's the thing, Doc Lifer. I totally get the whole it's better to have and not need than to need and not have thing. But seriously, if you've done this as long as I have, there's no reason to be toting around some of the gear that I was painstakingly toting around. And I'll bet you've experienced this a bit yourself, where you've packed every last lens, every extra battery, that super sweet slider that looks really cool but you use approximately once every two years, or in my case, the Light Pro Feather Crane, which we'd paid over $800 for four years ago and really only used for about four shots. Or even my handheld rig, which was ridiculously weighty, and I actually preferred simply holding our cannon tightly to my body because I kind of liked the flow or dance with the camera better that way. All of these things, they were just adding weight. And not just physically, although that eventually itself, that took its toll when during the last week of shooting, I came down with some severe shooter's elbow, also known as tendonitis, that seriously prohibited my abilities in the last couple of days of shooting. But I'm also talking psychically. Anyone who knows me will tell you that even in the best of times, I'm basically a pretty neurotic person. But put me in Cambodia, either traveling alone or maybe another person or two with all of this equipment, I was on a whole other level of anxiety. And all the time. Like the morning we were boarding our minibus, which was already late by an hour, to leave the town of Batambang, headed back to Siem Reap. And Patrick and I, we were frantically trying to get all of the bags onto the bus. And by the way, every time we traveled, we'd have to purchase an entire taxi or pay for extra bus seats because we were carrying so much. Well, during this particular morning, we boarded the minibus and suddenly I had the realization that for some insane reason, the last bag that we needed to bring onto the bus was the camera bag. I immediately went to a place of panic. I couldn't fathom how that hadn't been the first bag to make it onto the bus. We'd done this a number of times already. This was like clockwork. So after a quick search for the bag on the bus, I sprinted out the front door to where we'd been sitting at the station. Patrick was shouting behind me, but I couldn't tell what he was saying. I assumed it wasn't good. My heart sank when I didn't see the camera bag where we'd been sitting. So I'm trying to calm myself down, you know, with some meditative breaths, but I knew that wasn't going to be any good. I was already trying to remember where I'd put our gear insurance information because clearly after making it through 80% of the shoot, our camera had now been stolen. 
I turned back towards the bus where Patrick was waving at me. I ran back up to him. He produces the camera bag, which was apparently buried next to other passengers' bags at the front of the bus. I looked around me at other foreign tourists' faces who just kind of looked at me either amused or confused. Or was that pity on their faces? I sat down, relieved that the camera was on board, but slightly embarrassed by my panicked state and also, again, annoyed that I was now not only experiencing the physical burden of all of this extra gear, but now that extra weight was clearly taking its psychic toll on me. I tell you all of this because I really, really, really think that you should remember to pack lightly whenever and wherever you shoot. But maybe especially in situations where you're far from home and don't have the luxury of your own car, your own home to go to at the end of the night, or an airtight, reliable way in which to travel or stow your gear and belongings. I never did end up using the Light Pro Feather Crane. In fact, I sold it to another Cambodian filmmaker just before leaving country. I never used my GoPro or any of its accessories. I didn't even end up using two of the lights that I brought with me. I used my handheld rig a total of one time. Fast forward to just after midnight and to the UK and I'm closing my eyes to get in a little meditation before the flight. And a funny thing happens. I think of something that I've thought very little of over the past two months. It wasn't the film, surprisingly, and it wasn't Cambodia, and it wasn't Steph or the kids. In fact, I just texted her to let her know I'd see her soon, soon being like 18 hours, by the way. For the first time in two months, I begin to think of the podcast. And I think of all the things that I can't wait to share with my community of doc lifers. And I get excited at the prospect of talking with other doc filmmakers, whether guests on episodes or through emails from other doc lifers or re-engaging on the doc lifer community Facebook group. The hiatus was good. Steph and I had both needed it. After 100 episodes, we'd felt the need for a break. We had other things to attend to. Mostly we wanted to get back to our own documentary. And we were both now feeling more connected to our film in a way that we hadn't for at least three years. Elvis of Cambodia now feels like a real film somehow, if that makes any sense, which is just amazing. And we can't wait to keep working on it and sharing that journey with the world. And this time away from the podcast, and then this time in Cambodia working on our doc, it's given me a renewed appreciation for doc filmmaking. And it has reinvigorated me to now reconnect with you. I've kept you at bay for a while now, Doc Lifer. Sure, I've continued receiving your emails, and thank you for that. And I've occasionally popped into the TDL Community Facebook group. But for the most part, I've successfully put up my boundaries and I've set out to do what I'd set out to do, which was to get back to the one thing that gives me more self-satisfaction, more meaning and gratification than just about anything else in my life, making documentary film. And now that I've done so, 
I am more eager than ever to get back behind this old mic and share some more of that inspiration and information that we've all come to know and love. And I'm eager to bring on some more amazing documentary industry guests. And oh, have we already got some great ones lined up for you for season two of the show. But mostly, Doc Lifer, I'm eager to get back to reconnecting with you. I've missed you, old friend. And I'm really, really glad that we can all do this again. And you know what? I think it's going to be an even grander journey this time out. So thanks for joining me for today's episode. And when we return, what better way to kick this season's guests off than with a doc lifer who has made it her passion to bring recognition to one of the most important, yet little known, female directors of all time. Our conversation with Pamela B. Green is up next, here on Season 2 of The Documentary Life. Something I wanted to mention before continuing on with today's show. You've probably noticed that we're playing around with some pretty cool fresh sounds on this season of TDL. And I'd like to thank Music Vine for supplying us with those cool fresh sounds. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about how Music Vine might be able to serve your doc project, you can check out the show notes for today's episode, or you can simply go to their website at musicvine.com. Hey, Doc Lifer, Chris here. You know, when I look back on my documentary filmmaking journey, I can see that I did a lot of things wrong. But I also did some things right, and one of those things was joining a mastermind. I have found masterminds in both my personal and professional life to be extremely motivating and beneficial. I have invested in myself, in my goals and intentions as a filmmaker, and received exponential results. Masterminds give you direct access to like-minded, supportive, and experienced people who get you. They understand what you're trying to do and why and can help you achieve your filmmaking goals more efficiently and successfully. They can make your whole filmmaking experience much more enjoyable, lucrative, and empowering. That is why I'm so excited to be announcing our first ever Doc Lifer Elite Mastermind. Doc Lifer Elite Mastermind members will meet every week for a live group coaching call led by myself and Steph, as well as have access to a private members-only Facebook group where we can be in daily contact. It'll be you, me, Steph, and a handful of other doc filmmakers giving guidance and advice, keeping you accountable and answering your questions on funding, distribution, building a team, your doc lifestyle, basically anything that's holding your film back or can move your film forward. Each and every week, we'll be guiding you to greater success and empowerment with your film, as well as working through personal or lifestyle challenges that may be holding you and your project back. For more information and to submit your application, go to thedocumentarylife.com mastermind. Once you're approved, you'll get immediate access to the exclusive Facebook group and to our live group coaching calls, which start on Tuesday, May 7th, where we can begin to help you take your doc film and your doc life exactly where you want it to go. We'll see you there, Doc Lifer. Welcome to our first ever Doc Lifer stories. 
In the spirit of connectivity and togetherness of the documentary filmmaking world, which is the essence of why we started the TDL podcast, we're bringing you stories from doc lifers, doc filmmakers like you and I from around the world. You'll remember back in the finale for season one, we mentioned putting more of an emphasis on our written content on the Documentary Life website. This included the column simply called Doc Lifer Stories. As we run these stories, we will also bring you an excerpt in that week's podcast episode. These writings can be found by going to thedocumentarylife.com slash blog. Our first installment comes from Doc Lifer Thomas Bertram, someone who is an active member of our TDL community Facebook group. Thomas wrote to us from the provinces of Thailand where he's been working on his latest doc project. While he's from Germany, Thomas has spent quite a bit of time doing his doc work over in Southeast Asia. One of Thomas's biggest hurdles that he faces is one that a number of us can relate to. It's about work-life balance. Maybe even more specifically, balancing his paid video gigs with the non-paid passion work, his documentaries. He's been fortunate enough over the years to have clients who continue to give him work while he saves money for his passion projects. It is certainly Thomas's goal to one day have these two worlds merge so that he's being paid to produce the passion work. Like many of us doc lifers, it is Thomas's dream to someday soon be making his entire living making documentary films. To read more of Doc Lifer Thomas Bertram's story and to hear it in his own words, go directly to thedocumentarylife.com slash blog. This is where current and all future Doc Lifer stories will reside. Check these out and do consider contributing your own Doc Lifer story today. Pamela B. Green is an American film producer and director known for her work in feature film titles and motion graphics. She is a co-founder of PIC, an audiovisual communications studio focused on entertainment and motion design. PIC designs and produces content for motion pictures, television, and commercials, and has done main title sequences for over 100 feature films and for every major Hollywood studio. Green is also the writer, director, editor, and producer of Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet, a feature-length documentary about the first female film director, Alice Guy Blachet. Be Natural is a documentary that successfully ran a Kickstarter crowdfund for $200,000, was executive produced by Robert Redford, Hugh Hefner, and Jodie Foster. It was also narrated by Jodie Foster, and it premiered at Cannes 2018. It has now just begun its theatrical release. Pamela B. Green, welcome to The Documentary Life. We're excited to have a conversation with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, Early on, it sounds like obviously design and motion graphics played a big part in your life. I'm curious if you can kind of shed a little light on that and how this led you to the film and TV industry, and then perhaps how that led you to documentary. Basically, I loved detective stories growing up as a child, and I loved uh, drawing and um, I loved animation, but I never thought that it was something I was going to get involved with until I moved to LA working for a company called Kaleidoscope that did motion graphics and uh, movie trailers of one of the first trailer companies. 
in the business. So they had all these departments where they did movie trailers and posters and graphics for TV spots and trailers and mm-hmm. title sequences. And I didn't even know what that meant. And <laughs> I knew I didn't know what I was watching. So then I said, oh, title sequences. I like Panic Room and you know, Spider-Man and, and different things. I was talking to the different artists. So I felt like I got accepted by understanding, you know, the quality of the work mm. and, you know, liking Saul Bass, et cetera. But I, to, I didn't know that you could tell a story full on through using that medium. Mm. And that was kind of my school in a way to learn about movie marketing, editing TV spots, trailers, graphics, uh, et cetera. Oh, yeah, I bet. And then from there, I ended up starting my own company where I wanted to do more commercials, directing uh, commercials and doing like the Oscars. Basically, anything that I wasn't able to do or I wanted to work on, I just sought after because I would bring in the work as well. Mm. But mostly looked at myself as the uh, producer and then only later as a director. And then these tools obviously are the perfect match for working on Be Natural yeah. But even before that, I was working on a film called Budo and another one uh, called The Kingdom that had a lot of stock footage and archival, and I became obsessed. <laughs> so I searched the hell out of the stock footage. And obviously, again, in Be Natural, that was a big deal. So when I found out about Alice, I put the the tools to work. Um, but I'd never made a film before. I didn't go to film school. I didn't go to design school. I didn't go to animation school. I didn't go to writing school. And I definitely didn't go to editing school (laughs) before. So there's a lot of never have before on this film and a lot of firsts uh, definitely for me. But the thing is, you know, and I've already gathered here in a few minutes of conversation with you, Paola, you're you're very much, you're someone who embodies an entrepreneurial spirit. And so anything it sounds like that you may not know, you quickly find out how to do it or where the resources are that, that can help you along that journey, don't you? Yeah, because you don't wait. Because um, when I was at Kaleidoscope, I remember I was doing, it was called paper cuts, where you basically cut what the script or TV spot's going to (laughs) be. And then I was like, oh my God, I don't know how to do this. And my boss at the time, his name was Mike Camp, he said, well, you better figure it out (laughs) because we're not going to do it for you. And um, I just, you know, was always kind of like a a one woman show of just doing my own thing in an organization and treating it as my own business Mm. and just not counting on anyone because you have to really, if you want to move forward, you have to really do the work. Have you ever heard of Alice Guy Blaché? Filmmaker, I've never even heard of that. I've never heard of Alice. I'd heard of her when, when, uh, no, I'd never heard of her. I think people will think you're making it up. 1895, the Lumières present the first public demonstration of their new invention the cinematographe, the first reliable method to project motion pictures. Among those invited, a young secretary, she thought, why not use film to tell stories? How did you first hear about the story that would become Be Natural, your first documentary feature? Um, I had seen a show on um, AMC about women pioneers in cinema, Hmm. and uh, it was vaguely interesting. It felt kind of, you know, old school documentary. But then I stumbled on Alice and it just blew my mind mm. because mm. I never, ever, ever thought of a woman director. <laughs> and, right. 
And my industry, it was predominantly men in design and animation. I was always looking, where are the women? Mm. I was, you know, the producer, they were doing the design, animation, and I, it was hard to find women. So it woke me up and rewired my brain in a way wow. because um, it made me think, wait a minute, she was there at the beginning. Like, what? It must have been more. Like, it just blew my mind right, that this right. person was partially responsible for the language of cinema that we know today, and we don't know anything. Mm-hmm. So I asked so many people, as you would. It's like you call your friends, you call your besties, <laughs> then you call the friends of friends, and nobody knows. And then yeah. you start asking people in the industry. They don't know either. And And then I told my grandmother about it, and she's like, are you sure that somebody hasn't already done something about this? Because you don't want to be in a situation where you're, like, you're doing something that somebody else did already. Like, of course, how is it possible? Right. <laughs> She's like, I, d- I don't believe you, Pamela. This person can't even exist. She sounds like somebody from a novel. How could it be? Right, right. So I thought it was a treasure left on the floor, but mm. it wasn't a treasure left on the floor in a way. It was somebody that was known and work had been done about her, but yeah. not as a whole. It was just little pieces that were chipped away and she was very much in the world of academia and footnotes yeah. and bullet points of like, okay, trivia, who's the first woman film director? So she wasn't really interesting beyond that unless you did the work. And the reason why nobody did anything before is because it took time and money. A hell of a lot you know? of work. <laughs> and, and years, years, yeah. years of, you know, so, um, I showed it to Robert Redford and he was stunned and he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I think I should do a documentary, which, you know, I always laugh when I say that because, you know, look at where, how long it took me. And if I could go back in time, like, did I do the right thing? And, you know, so much of my years are, you know, taken, but, you know, she deserves it. But, um, well, and what, and yes. what was it for you? Why was this a documentary that you had to make? And maybe maybe is there a, a key point in the journey in your of discovery about this woman where you thought, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to commit to this. Maybe you can share that with us. Her face, um, I looked at her and I felt that she was saying, you know, I'm stuck. This is not where I belong. I, you know, I need you to tell my story. Mm. I felt that. Um, it's weird. I think subjects pick you. I did have the tools and I had the, you know, the tenacity, the ambition, the passion and the determination. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't know what I knew. And that's actually a good thing because then you're free because you can just go out there and explore and not be bound by all these borders of what can or cannot be done. Mm. So I decided to ignore what was in front of me or on the sidelines and just go for what I thought was the best approach to get her back in discussion today and restore her legacy. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, you have something in in the way of resources that maybe a lot of our listeners don't have. And in fact, you just, you know, you mentioned the name Robert Redford. And of course, Robert Redford was one of the executive producers, along with Hugh Hefner and Jodie Foster. If not for the connections to them, I'm curious, do you think that, I, I guess I would say, how much did they inspire you to, to move forward with the story? And if you didn't know them and perhaps didn't have that connection with those names, do you think that you would have still gone through with this film? Yes, I would have still gone through with it, but it would have been much harder. But also, I just want to mention, there's many, many people that came on board. Yeah. Um, my Kickstarter had 3,840 backers. 
Um, <laughs> Dina Davis's institute, Melon Denono, saw that. She sent it to Jill and Dreyfus. Then we had Regina Scully that came on board. Um, that was one of our first big donors before um, Hugh Hefner, actually. Mm. And uh, Jamie Wolf, uh, Caroline Feeney, Ab- Abigail Disney, Linda Wyman. There's so many people that are behind this film, men and women that have supported this um, adventure. But yes, of course, I showed it to Robert Redford, not because his name was Robert Redford. I showed it to him because I respected him in the industry because he wasn't the typical Hollywood. He had something that he had made called Sundance for women uh, to be able to have an avenue to show their work. So already that was interesting to mm-hmm. me. And, um, and he was open to talking to me we got along right away and he loves history we both love history so Mm. that was really the connection and he was blown away and he trusted my determination and passion that i would you know see it through same thing with jody jody i didn't even know her coincidentally i was possibly going to be working on her film the beef i don't even think she knows that so you have an extra secret there (laughs) but um she i i sent her the information and she's all i can do is narrate and um, she was intrigued, and I said, "He absolutely. That's exactly what we're looking for." Because mm. uh, Joan Simon, who co-wrote the film with me, said that Jody would be perfect. And I said, "Oh my God, I can't believe I didn't think about that." Because she speaks fluent French, and she is extremely intelligent. Mm-hmm. So, for me, I was wanting to get people that I respected and admired, and that I felt that were talented, yeah. and that had vision, and that I can learn from to help me tell the story. And I needed to, I felt that I needed to reach out to the best in the business. And I certainly did get that. Well, you know what? And I'm sure that uh, I'm sure in the back of your mind, you were well aware that someone like Elise certainly would have approved of, of the likes of Jodie Foster doing narration for the film, eh? Yes. What, let's talk about this decision of narration in the film. Uh, when did you when did you know that narration was part of the storytelling device that you were going to use for this doc? From the get-go. Because I was interested in the detective part. I didn't call it a detective story. It was more about finding things. So I knew that in order to get funding, I needed to find new material. And I knew that it was something that I was good at because I love research. And um, I was talking to Ancestry.com and getting, you know, a membership before they were even who they are today. Like five, six years ago, they were not what they were today. And I was obsessed. Once I logged on to Ancestry.com, I was stuck on there for a while. It was actually affecting my day job. And... um, And I said I wanted to do interviews on Skype because we could talk to people around the world so people could really see the journey of what it takes to uncover what happened and to restore someone's legacy. And I got a lot of pushback, a lot of mansplaining in the business. What do you know about editing? What do you know about creative directing? What do you know Mm, about mm, designing, mm, animating? mm. What do you know? Which I heard on a daily basis anyway, but I just, you know, would sweep it under the carpet and keep going. Ignored it, yeah. But I felt that maybe they were right because this was a huge undertaking. And they're like, well, did you see this documentary? And then this person, they do it this way. And this person, they do it that way. Sure, sure. And I kind of carved out my own path. And, um, you know, I was told it was career suicide. <laughs> you know, Pamela, you're kind of touching on something that I feel like a lot of our a lot of our listeners can appreciate. And, and it's this idea of... You know, there are a number of people along the way who will tell you that you cannot make your film. And there will be a plenty of reasons 
that you will encounter along your journey that can keep you from making your doc film. But perseverance is such a key part to this and, and maybe even slight almost ignorance, you know? I mean, willful ignorance, shall we call it, where people are telling you that you can't do something and you know what? You keep going forward anyhow because you have a passion that draws you to tell that story. And so I think there's a lot there in what you've said that people that uh, a lot of doc filmmakers that are listening to this can, can certainly appreciate. Yes. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you do it. Documentaries are a labor of love. You don't look at it for fame. You don't look at it because you're trying to get into Hollywood. You do it because you're, you're trying to send a message and you're trying to make a difference. And for me, it was definitely rewriting history and mm. making sure that Alice was known. How could such an important figure in the birth of cinema not be known? I was determined to do something about it. My name is Pamela Green, and I'm working on a documentary. Let's talk a little bit about your decision to include yourself and your own journey as part of this story. Because what's kind of interesting to me, and it's something that I've not, I don't know that I've seen done before, is in a doc film, not only have narration, but also include include really the author of the film, if you will, as part of that journey. So when did you know that you wanted to be really in the film yourself? When, when was part of your journey going to be a part of this film? Cutting the pins phone calls was always something that was going to be in there, but I never wanted to do an intro. I never wanted to be on camera. Mm. I try to cut myself out as much as possible, mm. but it was actually Kevin McDonald, who's an amazing documentarian. And he said, Pamela, you're a detective you need to be in there. Somebody needs to follow you. And yeah, I just looked yeah. at him and I said, I don't want to be in there. He's like, you have to. And then the light bulb went up and I said to myself, you're an idiot. Of course you have to be in there because they need to show the journey, mm. you know, but I'm just a very, um, I'm a very, I'm an amazing producer. Like I can produce anything, but as a director, I didn't feel confident or comfortable in that role because of the way I felt about myself, but also the way people would talk to me and make me feel like I couldn't do some of these things. So I was very self-conscious about it. And I didn't want it to be about me. I mm. wanted it to be about Alice. But I realized that, you know, I had to show not only myself, but also make sure that people heard me so they can see the parallels of the things that I was trying to do and connect the dots. So, But the Skype and all that was definitely, all those things were included. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, I just was only going to cut them and just cut myself out (laughs) each time. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I dug it. It's definitely, it gives you an idea of the investigative sort of process that's happening in the film. And, and any, I think any doc filmmaker will, will even appreciate it more because it's very meta when you see the process of what's happening and the journey that's being taken. Now the film itself I think it's safe to say that the that the part of the intent is to shine light on another female filmmaker who perhaps really hasn't been known about, at least not for many, many years. So I have a couple of questions about that. Is Because of this, is there added weight to get this film seen? And what did you do, if anything, early on to ensure an audience for this film? Well, the Kickstarter, I think, was a smart thing because, first of all, I needed the money. I couldn't write any more checks. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know costly. So I knew that. And then immediately, you know, through Kickstarter, we created a whole social media following. It's not huge and it doesn't matter because I don't need 3 million followers, Mm. et cetera. I know that people are watching the Facebook, the Instagram, the Twitter, and I actually got a lot of money donated that way as Mm. well. Mm. So 
the film opened in the Lemley Monica this weekend. It actually did very good considering it was a slow weekend for a documentary. It did better than some other films that are playing per screen. So we were actually re- really impressed with that. But um, I, I think the younger generation is uh, embracing her. They're falling in love with uh, a 23-year-old, really. They picked up the camera with a couple of friends and, and decided to go out there and do it. That's, That's right. What's attractive for me is that she is just like anybody else. Yeah. And she was determined and passionate. And she just ex- exceeded expectations in the time where it didn't even seem possible. possible. She, ignored the obs- she ignored the obstacles and just looked forward to the possibilities. Well, you mentioned earlier that you had raised over 200K on, on Kickstarter. We obviously talk a lot about the importance of crowdfunding and crowdsourcing here on The Documentary Life. That is a significant amount of money, obviously, to raise on, a, on any crowdfunding platform. But part of the beauty of doing that, as you're, I think, alluding to here, and I'd love to hear you expand upon that, is that, yes, of course, you raise good funds But also as an offshoot, you're building an audience by the amount of engagement that you're that's happening throughout your campaign. Can you share a little can you shed a little bit of light about that engagement throughout that campaign? Uh, Well, first of all, that that is a lot of money to some, but it's not for this project. This project is extremely, extremely, extremely costly. All the licensing stock footage, it's the first time that her films had ever been seen. Some of them, they've been in film cans for quite some time. Uh, the older interview of Alice had um, subtitles burnt on her mouth and chest. Yeah. I had to have it removed <laughs> so you can see her. That costs $20,000. So you have to have people that are passionate and following the journey that want to write the checks to help you get there. So it's definitely been a combination of social media and philanthropists that have helped me get there. And if I didn't have the social media, I wouldn't be able to continue to get funding and and uh, uh, have the audience. One thing I will say is that it did take a long time and they felt that I was slacking off and that I wasn't going to deliver. So there were a lot of angry people saying that it's fraud. I didn't deliver. Where's the movie? And I had to contend with a lot of that, a lot of nasty comments, et cetera. So now that it's been going through the festivals and they're seeing the success and they're watching it. <laughs> I've actually had a journalist who interviewed me apologize yeah. and say that she was one of the people that wrote the nasty notes and she understands why it took so long after watching the film. <laughs> so, you know. Unless you've made a doc film, you just don't understand, do you? <laughs> you don't understand. And also, if you give, you should know that you gave to give and not, yeah, yeah. you know. And the other thing, too, is like, when can I get the digital download? Oh, and it's like, you, oh. you know, it's like, you know what? Why don't we celebrate that we finished it and <laughs> let it play in theaters and let's get through this part. And then you're going to get your digital download. Yeah. It's like the worst thing for a filmmaker to hear. Oh, man, it sure is. Where's my digital download? Where's my T-shirt? Uh, I just got uh, I just got back, Pamela, from filming in Cambodia. My wife and I have been working on a documentary project over there called Elvis of Cambodia. And we are now in year five of working on this project. And just recently, I started to get a couple of emails from some people that had been supporters from from an early crowdfund. And they were they, they were kind of similar things. And there was actually some anger in one or two of those emails. 
And, um, and it is, I mean, do you have any advice about how to contend with that sort of thing? Because as you know, and as most of our listeners know, the doc films can tend to be a passion project and they take a long time. So how do we deal with the wolves that are, that are at the, that are at the doorstep saying, Hey, where's the film? Where's the film? Or where, where are my rewards from Kickstarter? (laughs) All the rewards I've delivered that I'm very fast. You, you tell me I ship it. The DVD, I keep explaining the process. I just have to keep being strong and explaining the process. You're not going to be able to please everybody. So you do the best you can. Just like when you, I make the film. It's like, whoa, I like this, but I didn't like that. Or I like the editing, but why don't you show her films and, you know, show them longer? Mm, Or, mm. you know, why is the tape baking in there? That's not relevant. And kill this and kill that. You know, so people people don't, you know, they're not always going to agree with you. So all you can do is really work hard on being polite and mm. be as nice as you can and show that you're passionate and that you will deliver. Mm, mm, so, mm, mm. Um, and you have to deliver, but you just have to be super polite and just say, you know, I get it. You invested. I'm grateful. It's it's going to work out. And, you know, if you do want a refund, I understand. Yeah. But, you know, hopefully you can see the power of the story and, you know, we will deliver. That's all you can do. Today, we as doc filmmakers, we have to be entrepreneurs for ourselves and our work. And we talk about this all the time in the program. Alice was like the OG, the original gangster, if you will, of this. So what have you, Pamela, what have you learned from Alice? And what can we learn as doc filmmakers? Don't ask permission for anything you want to do. There's many ways of making films today. There's many uh, grants and applications. There's different funding resources that you can find. Don't expect anybody to see what you see. I did a Q&A Friday night at the Lumley Monica. I went back Saturday. I wasn't satisfied uh, with you know tickets on Saturday, so I went back and I did a Q&A again at, at uh, oh, 8.30 wow. at night wow, wow. just to keep pushing, pushing, yeah, yeah. pushing. You have to, you, you never, the work never ends until it's completely out into the world. Mm. You have to keep selling it until it's completely gone. And I think the lesson for me is, you know, again, continue to be determined and passionate. Don't ask permission. Be patient. Uh, patience is definitely something that I've learned here because I have no choice. If it's going to take two years to restore something, mm. okay, if I have to call the Library of Congress for three years to get the coming of Sunbeam to be transferred someplace else, then that's what it's going to take. You know, it's just the way it is. If it takes me five years to get the Bashy tapes, then it takes five years, mm. you know, but... Mm. During the process, it's agony and it's pain. So you have to ask yourself, is this what I want to do? Is this the story that I want to tell? Mm. Is this the movie I want to make? Because if you don't want to do it, then it's going to show because you have to be completely, completely determined and passionate and in love with what you want to the story that you want to tell. Mm. Otherwise, you're you're unfair to the audience and you're really unfair to yourself. And, 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 and let's sp- speak a little bit about the longevity of the project. You've been working on Be Natural for seven years. You have full-time work, as do most of us. How did you keep the momentum going? And, and maybe, even more what I, maybe even more what I'd like to hear is, Pamela, how did you structure your time? You know, did you do the film in spurts? Did you take time off from work to work on the film? How did you do that? Well, first of all, it took more than seven years between eight and 10 years, most likely, and partially because I had a day job. Mm. I would work, get up every morning at four, Mm. and I would work until 11 o'clock at night. Mm. So I would do both, and I had to make a living. So when people are like, why is it taking so long? Well, I need to pay my bills because I don't see anybody that's paying for my bills as I'm making this film. Yeah, of course. So I had to do the day job 
etc. And it was very difficult, you know, and it, it had um, uh, an impact on my health. You know, my hands hurt me from tweeting and uh, my hands hurt me from editing and the sitting and the standing and the moving and the doing and uh, just constantly, constantly using my brain. I was exhausted and I, I really wanted to give up. I was going to unplug everything. And I said, you know what? Screw this because I made a piece of crap and nobody likes it. And uh, I really did feel that way wow. for a long time. And it wasn't, if it wasn't for people like Joan Simon and Geraldine Dreyfus and Jamie Wolfe and mm. Regina Scully and Terry Thomason, who works at Playboy, that for two years she had to listen to me until she introduced me to, um, you know, Hef's team to, to donate. Um, wow. These people are my support and, and listen to my agony of, you know, what it took to keep it going. And they get it. They're like, I couldn't do what you did. I, mm. I couldn't do it. You know, then I have my research assistant who came in as a research assistant, left a co-producer. Her name is Kasima. So she kept me, she kept me going. Yeah. When I was cutting, my first cut it was two hours and 45 minutes. I was yeah. like, I can't finish it. She's like, just one more shot. Let's cut this and let's do this. So she picked me up. So you get lucky that you find people that see the importance mm. and you also seek out people that can bring out the best in you mm. instead of people that can, you know, they want to bring you down and not help you. And I think that was definitely one of my, my lessons is that I need to find people that want to, that respect me, that are not egomaniacs, that really want to give and, um, help the cause and just put the ego aside and just roll up their sleeves. Having gone what you went through to get this film made and out into the world, I'm curious, um, and maybe it's too soon to ask you this, but do you think that you'll do another documentary? Is documentary now a part of your life? <laughs> well, I think I'm always, I'm always a documentarian in a way because I ask a lot of questions yeah. and you investigate. I invest, I invest in people, mm. you know, people tell me the stories. Sometimes I'm in the supermarket and, you know, just going to buy some stuff at Trader Joe's and uh, I'll compliment somebody on something. And then before <laughs> you know it, I like know that the brother has cancer. This person has that. And then I'm one foot out of the Trader Joe's and they still want to talk. So <laughs> I think it's a little bit of a gift because I like to listen. Yeah. And I'm curious. So I'm always going to have that in me. I'm not going to say no, but I'm not going to say that it's going to be something like this because this was definitely a one-off for hours. This is mm. kind of like, okay, I'm doing this for you. I'm changing history. It's for you. This is my gift. And I don't think I'm going to be doing that again. We've been speaking with Pamela B. Green, the director of Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet. Pamela, how can we see the film? Uh, so it's playing at the Lemley Monica Film Center. Uh, we're committed up until Thursday, but it might change. We'll see. And then um, it's opening at the IFC this Friday, which you know we're very excited about, IFC Film Center in New York. That will be today for people listening to this show on Friday. Great. And and then future distribution for the film? Well, I do have distribution. Yeah. Uh, Zeitgeist Indeed. Uh, is my distributor uh, along with Kino Lober. So we have a nationwide rollout. So it'll be going to Atlanta, Denver. It's just slowly rolling out to different cities. I think it's smart. They're very smart ladies, um, Emily and Nancy, uh, to release it uh, slowly mm. and safely and let the audience absorb the buzz. this yeah, and it's already going, pe people are already going crazy on social media, and it's Certainly. been accepted to so many festivals. So, so let, the, let the film do the work, and I wish it was only that. But we also have an amazing publicity team. Falco came on board, 
and we don't have like millions of dollars. So it's very um, encouraging and it's quite touching to see their support doing all this work to get this woman out there. I'm touched. I got teary-eyed this morning when I saw Alice on the screen oh, in one of my man. interviews <laughs> because it's, it's becoming real. So we'll, of course, put trailers up in the show notes for this episode for Be Natural, and we'll also stay up to date on when screenings are happening. Pamela, Great. what an outstanding way to kick off season two of the documentary Life. Thank you so much for coming on to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Hey everyone, I wanted to jump on one more time and remind you that our first session of the Doc Lifer Elite Mastermind, it begins on May 7th. So we'd love to have you join our mastermind. And if you'd like to fill out an application or if you'd like to read more information about the mastermind, just head to thedocumentarylife.com mastermind. Thanks and we'll see you next week.